Journo at Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. He's been in the journalism game for more than four decades and even with that impressive pedigree, still proudly calls himself a hack. While his face is familiar to people around Australia for his Walkley award-winning television work, it's his mellifluous voice for which he is most well-known. Hugh Rimmington has worked in 40 countries around the globe as a foreign correspondent and now embraces new technologies such as podcasting in his storytelling pursuit. In this episode of The Journo Project, he speaks openly about the high price often paid by journalists on the front line in order to get the truth out. I'm officially National Affairs Editor at Network 10 and I present Sunday Extra on ABC RN. And you also present a podcast at Channel 10 as I well. I do, no. I should mention the podcast, <laughs> The Professor and the Hack with Peter Van Onselen. He's the professor and I'm the hack. Oh, and now this is a term, I will just dwell on this for a moment, the hack aspect of journalists fascinates me. Where does this come from and why do you think we take so much pride in calling ourselves hacks? I, I, look, I don't know, but I... Um, when we were trying to figure out a name for the podcast, I came up with the name because I think somehow it's good to have a professor like Peter Van Onsel and he's a very learned guy and he's he's a great great at communicating how politics is going, but I am just a hack. And let's face it, hacks are people who get a bit of a sense of what's going on and then bash into a story, into a narrative. And, you know, it's funny because when I started in journalism... There's all this kind of noble history of journalism and this, you know, and it gets taken desperately seriously. But to me, it was really a blue collar job. It was a job of finding out what happened in my town, in my case, a, a, you know, a small city in New Zealand, and then reporting it and then having to go back the next day and meet the same people, the councillors and the police officers and the court officials, whoever it might be. And they'd know if you were stuffing it around. So... It was basically a it was a job, and this is what has always appealed to me, is that it's a job at its bottom line, which I think is just a low-level public service job in the sense of doing a service to the public. So you take that very seriously? Oh, look, I think it's, you, you never imagine you're bigger than your audience or smarter than your audience. And because I started at 17, I got my first job at 17. Oh, and when in got, New Zealand? In New Zealand. And when mm-hmm. I got that job, I knew nothing. I could have named the Prime Minister and maybe a couple of Cabinet Ministers and probably got their portfolios wrong. I didn't know a damn thing about anything. So you were a cadet or a copy boy? I got a cadetship on a radio well station. Mm. Mm. Unexpectedly, because I wasn't looking for a job. But I got hired. <laughs> I, I met a bloke who, th- who was a, happened to be a news director, and he mistook me for someone who was applying for a job. So he started to interview me. At the time, I was cleaning rat cages at an animal <laughs> laboratory, and I met this guy, and he, and, and he was a very gruff type of character, not instinctively not the kind of guy that you argued with. And he saw me said oh sit down here and I went right and he goes why do you want to be a journalist and the thought had never occurred to me in my life and, and uh, but I, I said because it would be fun I knew it was a job interview so I just said because it'd be fun I said and he goes fun and and I said wasn't well, that why you do it and he kind of went mm. and he gave me a job 
He thought I was applied for a job. Oh, and then you came to Australia. Yeah, so I came to Australia mm. when I was 22. I was really on my way to London as young Kiwis were by that stage. But my brother, my older brother, had moved to Perth and he had clipped out this tiny ad out of the local newspaper for a, a radio journalist, I think it was a C-grade radio journalist in a Perth radio station. So I rang the number uh, using the office phone, of course, the newsroom phone back in Auckland, as it then was, and... Um, and the guy said, oh, OK, well, uh, what have you done? And by this stage, you've been doing it for three or four years or something. And he said, you, um, he says, do you read the news over there? And I said, yes. He said, can you read me some? And I looked around, there's a few bits of paper, so I read him some stuff. And he said, oh, can you start in two weeks? And I made it three weeks, and there I was. I was a radio journal in Perth. So there you go. So for people who perhaps are more familiar with your television reporting, of course, around the world, Hugh, there you go. It's come full circle. And here we are back in the studios at ABC in Sydney, and that explains it all. Do you feel like you're almost coming back home to be back in a, a radio studio? Oh, well, radio's fabulous. Uh, podcast is fabulous. And it's funny, just as you and I, Nance, walked into the ABC headquarters here in Sydney, uh, and and I'm only part-time at the ABC. I've never had a full-time job at the ABC, but there is something remarkable about a place where you're walking through the door. Immediately, as it turns out, we get in a conversation with Kevin Rudd. He happened to be in the building, and he's and he was walking out as we were walking in. So we get to talk about, uh, you know, politics in China at the mm. moment and other kinds of things. And then, and then in the in the. 20 metre walk to the lifts we've had conversations with three or four really fascinating people mm. and and that is the great uh, gift of the ABC I think is that it is a meeting house for people of all kinds of opinions and on the show I do I try to really make sure we get all kinds of opinions uh, across Australia and and it's in this one place it's a blessing to have the ABC well, you're very unusual, of course, you being able to, to work across different networks. Um, how have you achieved that? It's interesting. Yeah, so I've, I've worked in commercials for... Uh, because, you know, there were glory days in commercials mm. and they had money to send you around the world. And I kept out of... I learned early on I didn't want to be in commercial current affairs because I think that's a slippery slope to all kinds of dodgy practices and kept to news fundamentally. So I've done long-form journal, TV journalism and other kinds of things like that, but really I'm a newsman and I'm curious about what's going on and I don't want to manipulate. There's a temptation to manipulate commercial current affairs. You don't have to do that in news. I don't think you do. I've never felt I had to do it. And then, uh, and then I think someone at the ABC I'd actually written a book and then I got interviewed by the wonderful Richard Feider on Conversations. I remember that interview. Yeah, and someone, mm. someone here at the ABC heard me banging on during the course of that and says, <laughs> well, he, he seems to have done a fair few things. And we've got this position that's coming up that they needed to fill at short notice on, on our end running a show called Sunday Extra. And they thought, well, maybe he could do it. And, and they asked me to do it. I'm delighted to do it. Mm. And I can just still sense your excitement, Hugh, at being able to tell stories. You've been in this game for four decades. Yes, over 40 years. It's fantastic. How has the craft of journalism changed from your perspective in that time? Or is it just still about storytelling? It's completely about storytelling. Finding out what's going on and then trying to be on, honest and about what's going on and, 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 try and, and try and do it in some kind of narrative clarity. And so that's the discipline of the game. So the technology has changed immensely, but the technology will change and change and change again. It, it doesn't really matter. The technology doesn't interest me enormously. It's always sometimes a little bit exciting to see that you can do things more easily, get pictures out of some obscure place, uh, you know, do stuff much more quickly than you could back in the day. But 
all of that is subordinate to the storytelling and just finding out what's going on. So the medium doesn't matter to some degree. It's really about that story at the heart? Well, it is true, but but the medium does matter because the stories that you're able to, say, talk about on radio, uh, each of the various media have their own strengths. There's some great stuff that can go with print for analysis, there is nothing to my mind beats the combination of pictures and a, and a strong narrative with, where you're able to see the person who's talking to you and make your own judgments in the way that we do as human beings about their trustworthiness or whatever. So television has that great strength. Podcasts have the great benefits of this intimacy and just having a conversation, very inexpensive to set up. So that's great. And then radio has that immediacy. And, and then you've got online, you know, that ability to draw it all together online and chuck it out there. So all of it is exciting and all of them have different strengths. Many of the students that I teach or the young people that I speak to, they all started with the... They've got this dream of being a foreign correspondent. Did you always have that dream too, Hugh? Well, I did very early on because I did start very young. And my ambition was to buy a car. And then my, my, my next ambition was to buy, as every 17, 18-year-old in those days, was a stereo and then be able to buy records. Big dreams. Big dreams, big dreams. <laughs> and then at a certain point, because I, I, I was growing up at the end of the world in Christchurch, but I'd actually been born in Sri Lanka. So I, even as a child, I always had this idea that there was a world and my parents mm. were migrants and so on. And so I wanted to travel in a vague sense at some stage. And then I realised it's bloody expensive to travel. And at some point I thought, wow, you know, if you... If you did this right, you can get people to pay for you to travel. <laughs> and once that little penny had dropped, um, particularly once I started to get into... I remember I went... My first sort of bigger international thing was the Fiji coup in 1987. And that was quite a big deal in a Commonwealth country to see, particularly in the Pacific, to see balaclavered gunmen take over a parliament, march off the uh, elected prime minister and all the members of cabinet, and then take over the parliament and take over the radio station, the newspaper, and control what was going on. So this was quite a big deal for us, a big story at the time. And while I was there, I started to meet international foreign correspondents had flown in. They thought that this huge story that we were doing was actually pretty small beer and they didn't stick around for long. But I saw things like a photographer from Time magazine who looked at this for a couple of days and then thought he was heading off because it was too boring. I said, well, where are you going? Where's more exciting than this? And at that stage, El Salvador was going off. There was a lot of violence across Central America. And he goes, oh, I'm back to El Salvador. And I thought, wow, this guy does nothing but travel the world. And because it was such a great experience, learning experience of being in that Fiji coup, really learning a lot about what it's like to be in a place when all law and order breaks down, for example... I thought, that's interesting. Is that the last time I'll have that experience? Or should I start thinking about where I go to learn more about the world rather than just my own communities? And the me- and journalism gave me that. I've been incredibly lucky. Channel 9, when I was very much a newbie, I'd only had a couple of years in television, they sent me off to London. And in those days, the London Bureau for Channel 9 had a big budget, but it covered everything. It wasn't like the ABC, which had... Bureaus across Europe and bureaus in Africa and bureaus in Russia and bureaus in the Middle East. London was the centre point for all of Nine's coverage from Cape Town to Russia to the Middle East. And so... That explains a lot of the stories that you went to. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't expect Mm. Africa to generate so many stories when Mm. I was there. Those, you know, Somalia, Australian troops going in there, Rwanda and Mm. South Africa with the end of apartheid and the election ultimately of uh, Nelson Mandela. Incredible. All those sorts of things. And then there was 
trouble in the Balkans. There was, you know, there was a collapse of the Soviet Union and, and its difficulties that came after that. There was still basically a, a very, very intense terrorist conflict that was going on generated out of Northern Ireland in those days. Big bombs are going off in the middle mm. of London. So to go and cover those things. And suddenly you are on the go all the time. And I've seen you, from the stories you've done, you've you've not only been to these war zones, but also a number of natural disasters. Is is that comparable? I mean, are the stress levels the same, or is it a different experience when you're it's, yeah, on Yeah, it's the really ground? interesting, because uh, more people have died in natural disasters and stories that I've covered than have died in wars, mm. even the worst of the... You can argue Iraq over the long term probably did get up to hundreds of thousands. It's hard to say, but... The, in terms of people being de- deliberately killed through acts of violence, actually, I'm going to have to re- revise that because Rwanda, so many people died there. Mm. No, you don't have to change or anything, but but I mean, mm. I, the, so many people died there. So maybe that's. But the, the, the difference about a natural disaster is that it's not a result of malevolence. Mm. It's terrible events. You know, when you see a mass grave and they're heaving children into 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 holes that they've dug in the ground. Um, f- you know, and this is what's going on all day long, and, and tens of thousands of people are dead, whether it was the Indian Ocean tsunami or the Sichuan earthquake. 100,000 people died in western China, and that was extraordinary because it was in these narrow gorges, these valleys where the Sichuan Basin climbs up to the Tibetan Plateau. It's a spectacular scenery, but in this major earthquake, a lot of these valleys had collapsed entirely in and upon themselves, and even just to get up there to get to various villages was extraordinary. You know, So you're seeing all of that, but it's not malevolence that has caused the death toll. And you see people struggling to survive and to look after each other. There's often a lot of uplifting elements to that, and awful as it is, um, in in war zones, something like a Rwandan situation where there was so much, it was just malignancy. It was just an awful, deliberate killing of people for no purpose, women and children. And I saw that again and again. It, it, Somalia had a lot of that. Uh, northern Uganda had this Lord's Resistance Army where they would go in their raid, carve people up, cart off young women. Mm. It's very similar to the methods used by Boko Haram, for example, in um, in Nigeria, only with no pretense of a ideology that ran behind it. There was just like a vast criminal gang army. So you're seeing uh, violence on an enormous level. Y- you get stripped of your naivety a little bit. You go in initially thinking, well, I'm a good enough bloke. Who would want to do me damage? You know, I don't have, don't have any skin in this fight. And then you realise that actually the people are doing all this fight. They don't give a shit. You know, there's a lot of stuff going down. It must take a, a toll, Hugh, after a while. Even telling a story and being able to remove yourself to some degree with your work, it must take a personal toll. Well, I think one of the, tri- one of the things about being a journalist, if you want to really understand something, is that you, 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 I think you have to be willing to kind of lift up your own curtains a little bit. So you have to, when you're with people who are suffering in all kinds of circumstances, you have to expose yourself to them a little bit. You can't be hard-boiled about it. I think in some ways, psychologically, it's valuable to be hard-boiled about it. And I think you definitely want to be sufficiently restrained in the degree to which you expose your body and soul Mm -hmm. to the worst of awfulness, because otherwise you simply become ineffective. So the balance is to strike, strike, and and you miss it from time to time, and it's hard to sustain is to really be exposed to people's suffering in a way where you can go as far as you can go there and still function. But that, overall, I would say, the experience is a positive one. 
And I say positive because, and it's certainly not about, the story is not about its effects on me. The story is about the story. But the, the positive aspects of it is that it's impossible to feel self-pity when you've spent some time with children who've just lost their legs. You know what I mean? Mm. And they're not complaining. They're being incredibly brave. And the various times I've had, you know, got myself in some sort of painful situation or something, I've always remembered a little boy called Sebastian Alosi who who lost his legs in a um, tsunami, actually, in Papua New Guinea in 1998. And he was so brave as they took his legs off. (laughs) And I just want to be as brave as Sebastian. You know, the kid was eight or nine years old. So you do have this sense that you can't feel self-pity, and that's very useful psychologically. Those experiences don't leave you. No, they don't leave you. They shouldn't leave you. Mm. Um, I think the thing about it is, I've, I've kind of said, like, journalism is <clears throat> a fabulous job, and in the course of 40 years I've met thousands of people of every kind, incredible nobility, decency, self-sacrifice, intellectual rigour, Everyone from Stephen Hawking to Nobel Prize winners <laughs> to complete rogues and bastards and murderers and, and, and all these things. I've never met anyone who wasn't human, you know, and I've, I've never met anyone who wouldn't be within the range of Shakespeare to imagine. And this is the thing which really is the great lesson of journalism is, is the range to which our human souls can be shaped by ourselves and by our circumstances. And that means that we actually have an enormous range of choices about who we're going to be. And so, really, our lives are our choices. It's a corny line, and you wouldn't need 40 years of journalism to come to that conclusion. But all the time, you're meeting people who are making good choices, who are making brave and generous choices about their fellow human beings, as well as meeting complete assholes. Um, and you've got to accept the assholes are there. You know, there's there's real violence, malevolence. Even some of the people who are capable of enormous violence are themselves victims of all kinds of things. So you can have some sort of level and some ways of a kind of human empathy, even with complete bastards, without necessarily getting Stockholm syndrome about them. There are some really, really evil people Mm. around but um, overall as humans we're not so bad we need to see the best in each other every time that we can but even more importantly we need to really really reflect on the best in ourselves it's like you've seen the pinnacles of the human spirit and the absolute depths well you do but that's just the normal course of it Mm. and some people go beyond your capacities to understand how they could do it like a Mandela or something you know, I've met so many people who, in their own way, become friends with them in some ways, who it, it, are not famous people, but in their own way have, have managed and come to terms with great struggles and been tremendously generous contributors to those around them. And so, you know, you want to, you want to swim with the good fish, you know, and there are a lot of good fish out there. You want to feel your solidarity with the good people when bad things happen, whether they are a human event, acts of violence and so on, or political, vile political behaviour, and we're seeing a lot of that around the world at the moment, or also just purely just a natural event. Mm. Uh, you want to be there to, to, to support the ones who are 
try. Is it hard when you have a bit of a personal connection, Hugh? Like I think of you with, you mentioned Sri Lanka, when you went back to do the Boxing Day tsunami, did that strike you as being more difficult than other horrendous disasters that you've reported over here? Uh, well, I was born in Sri Lanka. It's funny because to go back there, the first time I went back to Sri Lanka after leaving as a five-year-old was for the tsunami. And it was funny how I had all these uh, images that sprang up that just had this familiarity about them. The monkeys going through the trees, for example, uh, which I hadn't I didn't know I remembered, but suddenly you're getting all these memories being triggered. Look, I think human beings in times of great stress are very much the same. Broadly speaking, they're very much the same. But I do think that there is a... Calamities that happen in your own tribe are hard. So I went to a massacre in New Zealand back in 1990, I think, the Aramoana massacre, until the recent Christchurch massacre, their worst massacre. I found that hard to believe that New Zealanders who I'd grown up with in the South Island of New Zealand could do this. Not long afterwards, I was down at Port Arthur when he was still shooting. Yes. And the sense that people could shoot children, a man could shoot children, you know, and, and I, I know the circumstances in which he shot them, are just, that's just hard to comprehend that. And then I was in Christchurch, my own hometown, just after the, uh, the, the, the most recent massacre that took place there. In some ways, the Christchurch one had a different level. I think the Aramoana massacre and the Port Arthur massacre, Aramoana was by a guy who was unquestionably mentally ill. Port Arthur was by a, a guy who had a non-functioning level of intelligence. He, he'd never learned to read or write at 27 or whatever he was. And he had... He was diagnosed as having Asperger's syndrome. There was some doubt about that, but plainly he had a he had some he was somewhere on some sort of spectrum. He had no real idea. He couldn't actually reason or justify why he did what he did. He couldn't even make up a kind of a mock justification of it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the guy in Christchurch, where there was no rational justification for what he did, there's no way he tries to put a, a, he tries to put an envelope of reasoning around an act of just complete utter violence self-gratification in the violence and when you look at that and the claim of a, a political justification and he wasn't intellectually stupid he, so he had a brain uh, he wasn't psychotic this was an intended act of violence against a group that he had allowed himself chosen to despise and that is is really revolting behavior it's not proper that we feel sympathy towards these people at all. As journalists, we really are, I suppose, the filters in many ways. We see things that we choose not to communicate to other people because we've, it's just too traumatic. Do you feel that there's a better awareness now in the time that you've been a journalist of, of trauma and perhaps helping journalists who have been through this sort of... Look, I, th- I think we're all in all our fields better at understanding mm. that you can't be exposed to trauma, whether you're a defence force soldier or Mm. sailor or airman, whether you're in the police force, fire service, you know, a whole range of people are subjected to all kinds of shocking stresses and one of the psychological phrases is moral injuries where your own world gets spun out of control. Women who suffer domestic violence are more likely to suffer post-traumatic stress disorder than frontline soldiers. The rates are higher. Mm. So there is a lot of trauma in society. So yes, you know, we, we, we need to be aware of it and one of the things that I've found as a journalist is that you can't report I've learned the hard way you can't report the true awfulness of many things because in the reality of it uh, they're impossible to watch that must weigh down on you at times though 
I think the challenge is there to the way I deal with it is that is that I read a uh, an article in the old bulletin magazine, a news magazine, about alcohol. Oddly enough, and they had a section in there about how to, what's the fastest way to get drunk, and oddly enough, it's not to drink straight whiskey or vodka. Because at that level of concentration of alcohol, your body treats it as poison and tries to shut down the absorption. Mm -hmm. And plainly, it's not to drink light beer because you don't drink too much before you get there. So <laughs> the actual fastest way to get drunk is probably a classic old-style champagne cocktail, which involves sugar, a little bit of cognac, some bitters for flavour or whatever, and then you top it up with champagne. And the consequence of that is that you have a bubbly drink, which is sugary. The cognac has raised the champagne up to about 21%. And the threshold at which your body starts to see alcohol as poison is at about 22%. So you've, you're getting the maximum amount of alcohol into your system with the, you know, in the most concentrated form. Uh, so it's a, that's why it's such a great conversation starter. Uh, this is what I call the champagne cocktail theory. And that is that when you're reporting traumatic and horrible and awful events, you can't give people light beer. You can't pretend something bad hasn't really happened. But you can't give all the, all the horror, all the detail, all the unthinkable, unspeakable stuff because people recoil from it and they can't take it in. So you have to find a way to tell a story that rather like the champagne cocktail... It's right gives, on the edge. It's right on the edge. It gives enough for people to absorb what's going on without absolutely making them recoil. And that's the challenge for foreign correspondents who do tricky, difficult work. Mm. And I want to mention your Walkley Award-winning work to you, the amazing work you did on the, the Skype scandal in defence. Have you seen improvements? You've got such a passion I've seen for your defence stories. What have you noticed in those years? Yeah, so the sense? Skype scandal, that was a number of years ago, but it was about a young woman who was a cadet who's just turned 18, and she'd had consensual sex with another cadet at the Australian Defence Force Academy. Unbeknownst to her, uh, the bloke wasn't a nice bloke, and he had streamed that uh, via a computer, via Skype, to a whole bunch of other cadets in another room. And when she found out about it, she learned that there would be no significant punishment against them and no greater punishment for them than for her because you're not allowed to fraternise, as it's called. And uh, she felt that was inappropriate and she came to us in the media. And she suffered for that. Um, but mm -hmm. she also produced great change. In the end, there was no career for her. She was mm -hmm. spun out of the defence force. But charges were brought as a consequence of our reporting. People were, all the people involved were, were spun out of defence, so, and there were convictions against a couple of key, uh, the, the two key operators in that. And as I understand it, I know from people now who are in defence and, and that they use that as a learning tool as to how they can do it better. So I think we've got a better defence force, even though a lot of people in defence despised her, despised us for doing the story, that proved how out of touch they were, and they have really strived, I think. Defence is a hard beast to shift, but I think they've genuinely strived to be a better place as a consequence of that reporting, and I'm proud of that, and I'm proud of her. Is that the reward for you as a journalist, seeing social change? I've noticed a, a social justice thread, I think, through a lot of your work. Look, I think the reward is, is just daily. It's, there's, no, there's no big reward. There's no end. There's no finish line, in a sense, until you get spun off, get kicked out of the game. <laughs> uh, I think the reward in journalism is the daily business of telling a story where you think you've done fair by the people involved and there's a better insight into what's going on about what's happening. If, if in the course of it there's change in various areas, that's all to the good. 
I'm not a campaigning journalist per se. That's not my whole life's mm. work. I think if people have got information, the campaigns take care of themselves. The change will take care of, of itself. But um, certainly there are things that you understand that have changed over time. Just the way domestic violence is treated, for example, mm -hmm. that's, that's been a huge change over my life. Mm. The way in which gay men and women are treated in society has been a huge change over my life. Uh, the way in which, by the way, tobacco companies don't get a free run anymore to do whatever the hell they like with mm -hmm. vast budgets, that's been a huge positive change in my life. So these things have, have happened in the course of my reporting life. You could go on and on about them. I, I, I think we're a more anxious world even though when I started off, there was still in the middle of the Cold War where we, we genuinely thought that nuclear annihilation was a high probability. We don't think that's so much of an issue now. But overall, I think we're a more anxious world than we were when I started. And I'm sorry about that. That's a bit worrying. I think climate change, population, a whole bunch of social changes. Security. I think uh, mm. we, we've set mechanisms so that there is a greater gap between rich and poor. Mm. And even though the poorest people in society is not as poor as they were, um, where there is there is a lot of social science around the fact that where there is greater uh, gaps between rich and poor that has poor outcomes both for crime rates and also has poor outcomes for mental health mm. because it creates social anxieties and other kinds of things. Mm. But I think I recognise that Australia is not the egalitarian all, all bunch of mates looking after each other. That's not the nation we are, despite the strength of that myth as part of our ethos. We talk about aspirational, being an aspirational nation uh, and that that being the true nature in a way, that's a euphemism for individualistic. Australians actually, by and large, are outside the family unit, individualistic. We're not egalitarian. We're not mates supporting mates as much as we like to think we are. We are, on, on the measure of some social scientists, the most individualistic nation after the United States in the world. And, mm. and I think that is something that we need to really reflect on what that means. There are positives in that. And if it is who we are, then we've got to just face up to it. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, is that we really, we really do need to think about the consequences of, of individual actions and how we structure our society on everyone, uh, because we're all in it together. This seems a good point to just briefly, I know, and you've got to go and do your interviews here at the ABC, Hugh. Thank you so much for making time for us on Streets of Your Town today. But what about these? It makes me think of the, the recent raids on the media. Uh, in reflection of that and the changing aspect of Australia, what is your view of those raids on the ABC and News Limited journalists? Well, I think there's no doubt that these were intended to intimidate. Their whole purpose is to intimidate. The media is the secondary purpose. The primary purpose is to intimidate whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. And what we have to understand here is that we have a situation where people who find information out that is really damaging to our fellow citizens, if they blow the whistle on it, they get punished. They might use the media to get it out, but they get punished. There are court cases at the moment where people are facing long periods of time in jail for revealing, for example, illegal spying on our neighbour, uh, East Timor. We illegally spied on them at their highest political offices in order to get an advantage in negotiating a seabed treaty that would help us get more of the oil and gas that lies between us. Appalling behaviour by us to a poor, impoverished nation that needs all the help it can get. People are going to jail for revealing that or at risk of going to jail. Tax officer who revealed appalling practices within the tax mm. office is now facing 160 years potentially in jail 
And having gone public with it, they've had to change the way the tax office works. He did a good thing for the country and he risks going to jail. You know, there are other cases that are, that are going on like this. And, and we should all be worried about that. The surveillance state, the bully state, we all have to stand against the bully state. Because all this nonsense that it's about, oh, you know, it's going to risk lives if people break these secret secrets. But none of these cases are their lives at risk. None. All of these things are things that are in the public interest to know how our government works and that they've got a mechanism in place that will jail people for years for doing good things for the country and then harass and intimidate journalists. Of course, you know, we're big enough and ugly enough to take it and we can speak back. But everyone should be aware that, that when people in good faith find out things that are wrong about the way things are operating, they have to be allowed to speak that up for the good of the country and not face going to jail at the behest of some really unattractive bullies that we've allowed to take positions of power in this country. Thank you so much, Hugh, for joining us today. Is there anything you'd like to say to those budding journalists out there who are trying to hone their new sense and emulate some of the work that you've done? Well, good luck. I mean, the main thing is, is that the money's not in it as it once was, but there will still be a living in it. And if you care about it and you want to tell stories and have a great life, I can't think of a better calling. Thank you so much, Hugh. Thank you, Nat. <laughs> That was Hugh Rimmington, Channel 10's National Affairs Editor, ABC Radio National Presenter and Co-Presenter of the Professor and the Hack podcast. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, a.k.a. The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time.